Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with Andrew Hartman, an associate professor of history at Illinois State University. We will be discussing his book, A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars, published by the University of Chicago Press. Hartman provides a whirlwind tour through four decades of the most salient debates that became known as the culture wars of the late 20th century. The culture wars was a set of debates and political tussles reflected America's struggle to deal with the vast changes left by the 1960s and were more complex than a simple left-right secular religious binary that characterized public discussion. Beginning with the normative Americanism fragmenting the influence of the new left, Harbin shows us how the watershed decade set the terms for the culture wars that followed. Public intellectuals such as Paul Goodman and C. Wright Mills, to rock stars such as Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, and the comedy duo of the Smothers Brothers marked the changes. Seemingly, everything about American life, from sexual mores to national history, was up for renegotiation. Harbin places the genesis of the public debate for the American future in the struggle between the new left and their chief ideological opponents and former liberals, neoconservatives. During this initial intellectual battle fueled a popular war for the social, religious, and economic future, drawing in the newly formed Christian right, self-identified ethnic groups, feminists, and others. The struggles over school curricula, the rewriting of history, cultural power, the family, religion, and the nature of truth was the process of coming to terms with a new reality, a situation of a permanent cultural evolution and the loss of a normative shared culture. With the heat of battle significantly cooled, we are left with what Hartman calls an anti-authoritarian individualism, under relentless capitalism, weakening the hope for social democracy. Here's my conversation with Andrew Hartman. Now let me introduce you to the author, Andrew Hartman. Andrew, welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience. Thank you so much for having me, Lillian. I'm excited to be here. Uh, the term culture wars is an often confused concept. It means a lot of things. It stands for a lot of things. But you have managed to really make a very complex term accessible without oversimplification. And I think that's the, that's the great part of your work is you've made something very confusing accessible. So, but first, we, before we get into your book and the ideas in your book, I want to know something about where you came from, how you got into do, doing this work, uh, this particular project. Sure. So I grew up in Denver, and I went to um, University of New Mexico but then after that, I went to um, the universe, the Metropolitan State College in Denver, where I got certified to be a teacher. While there, I was introduced to a number of professors who, it seems to me in retrospect, were engaged in the culture wars and first introduced me to these ideas um, that were floating around during the time. This was during the 1990s. 
And I think I decided um, that I wanted to perhaps not commit to the culture wars, but to understand them more thoroughly. And I became, mu I became much more sort of politically engaged and active as I entered the high school classroom. But I soon discovered while teaching high school at a high school um, in the Denver area that a politically engaged teacher can run into some trouble. And so within my first two years, I um, was forced out by an administration because of my political sort of pol politically activist teaching style. And, you know, this was a time period where I had been fully immersed in social history and the works of Howard Zinn, whom I write about in chapter nine of my book. And it just wasn't welcomed at that high school. And so at that point on, I decided to go to graduate school to earn my PhD in history. And, but these, the sort of lessons I learned, those hard lessons from mistakes I made, but then the sort of larger political context of the high school I taught at, I took with me, um, in my scholarship. And so my first book, which was based on my dissertation, Education in the Cold War, was in part an attempt to understand the sort of the political nature of education and ideas related to education. And so um, in that book, I tried to understand how in the early Cold War schools became sort of fashioned as part of the larger um, political economy of the Cold War and how, for example, teachers with left-wing views were fired, thousands of them, especially in places like New York City. I attempted to expand outward um, on, this, on these lessons in this book itself, um, and this was an attempt to understand why culture itself had become so political. And so a lot of it has to do with education. Um, readers will note that the educational history is sort of we weaves in and out of the whole book, particularly uh, chapters seven, eight, and nine. But it's also a larger attempt to understand how things like film and television, um, literature, why these things divide us. Um, and, and so that's kind of how I came to the project. And I also came to it because it's, I decided that it was the type of uh, book I could write that would um, allow me to deal with everything that I'm really interested in, politics, culture, education, all through the lens of intellectual history. Well, in your book, uh, A War for the Soul of America, you begin by talking about normative America. So can you unpack that for us? Sure. So I noted in my research that Many, many conservatives of all different stripes, whether they be neoconservatives or religious conservatives, were, were, were anxious, at the very least, about developments in the United States since the 1960s. And in being anxious about such developments, they were worried that the America that they knew, that they understood, was threatened. And this America that they knew and understood um, I came to understand was a sort of vision of 1950s America when the culture itself, I think, was pervasively conservative, especially when it comes to things like gender expectations. Also, I would say um, racial expectations. And so if you're a um, conser conservative white Christian American, the 1950s is sort of the the perfect time in American history uh, for the culture that you recognize and things that came after that were, um, 
you know, less than perfect if that is your identity in the American culture. And so that's what I identified as as normative America. Now, you, what are the major historical problems that you're trying to address? The big picture of the book. Well, I think that one of our jobs as historians, um, maybe the main job, is to come to terms with change and continuity. Um, and so anything that we do, we're explaining why things have changed or why things have not changed. And one of the major arguments I make, and I'm not obviously far from the first person to make this argument, but I am sort of going against a trend I think, especially amongst intellectual historians, to downplay the 60s. I'm making the case that the 60s truly were some sort of break or a transformation. I call it in the book a cultural revolution. And that this cultural revolution, um, you know, angered at least half of Americans and that we're st- the culture wars were the legacy of this transformation or this cultural break. Uh, and that to some degree we still fight, it, fight out, but particularly during the 19. 19- 70s, 80s, and 90s, this is this cultural break that Americans are are living out. And so even though not everyone embraced the changes of the 60s, everyone had to come to terms with it through debating the culture wars. It was a sort of adjustment period. And so the United States, I argue, due to 60s activists, became uh, more feminist, less racist, more secular, more pluralist, but not everyone was happy about those changes. Okay, but you're not denying that there were other periods in American history, particularly early 20th century, a progressive era, for instance, uh, where there were significant battles over what America was going to become. No, of course not. In fact, I think that, especially for intellectual and cultural historians, one of the major sort of fault lines of understanding U.S. history is through these debates about what is an American, what, what it means to be an American. This goes back to the very origins of the nation. But these, uh, these debates, these times of debates ebb and flow. Sometimes they're more intense than others. And I think the debates during the 80s and 90s were more intense than most other periods in U.S. history, I'm not going to say the most intense, but they were more intense than most other periods in, in American history. And I argue that's because the changes that were ma- made manifest during the 1960s uh, were that radical at a cultural level. Um, and that the debates in the 80s and 90s are particular to that era. They're different than earlier debates about this larger question, what it means to be an American. Now, you make you put this uh, on the new left. You begin you begin this problem with the sixties, this change in the sixties with the new left. Where did the new left come from? That's a really good question. Um, I focus a lot on the new left because I think when people talk about cultural change that results in conflicts such as the culture wars, they tend to um, sort of ignore or de-emphasize the political activism, perhaps, that led to these changes. And who were these activists in the 1960s who gave us new visions of gender, for example, who sort of came out of the closet and made gay rights acceptable? They were all a part of this larger sort of umbrella movement that um, I would call the new left. Many of them 
for college students or perhaps children of left-wing, old left-wing activists. Some of them were quote-unquote red diaper babies. They might have been the children of communists from the 1930s. Um, some of them, though, for example, Mario Savio, who was the leader of the free speech movement, Tom Hayden, they were the children of conservative Catholics, and so they were sort of breaking out of normative America, if you will, that was pervasive, especially in their lives. Um, and so a lot of them might have been just sort of white middle-class college students, but the ones that made the biggest difference tended to be minorities, the Black Power Movement or other Chicano and ethnic power movements that arose on college campuses, among other places, to challenge the type of knowledge that Americans should learn about their country and other aspects of what it means to be human, feminists, gay rights activists. And so all of these movements, at the time, they probably might not have considered themselves sort of allied in any political sense of that term with the other um, New Left members. If you were an anti-war uh, activist, say an SDS, um, people in the Black Panthers might or might not have considered you uh, an ally of theirs, but in retrospect, from the historian's perspective, I think they were all part of this larger umbrella movement that sh uh, shifted American history. And even though the New Left, I don't think, had too many political victories in the sort of traditional politics sense of it, they had some. I think the Democratic Party changed dramatically, at least for a time, as uh, represented in the George McGovern nomination in 1972. But for the most part, they didn't have the political victories, but they changed the culture. And I'm not the first to argue this, but I think I emphasize it more than most people. Now, the 1960s in your book uh, was the period where the new left got constituted, but also there was their nemesis, the neoconservatives. All of a sudden, we've got this new a political viewpoint of neoconservatism. What is that? Is that conservatism? Is this the old liberal of the 1950s? Where does it go? Yeah, so that's a good question, and I think it's something that I hope is a unique contribution of my book because most people, when they think about the culture wars, they think about religious conservatives. They think about Jerry Falwell and Phyllis Schlafly. But... I argue that the very terms of debate in the culture wars were part of this dialectic between the new left on the one hand and the neoconservatives who were the first to emerge in opposition to the new left at an intellectual level. Many neoconservatives had leftist roots, but many of them also were sort of Cold War liberals. Um, they were centrists in many respects and Democrats, and they were, they were Democrats who supported JFK and to a certain extent LBJ, but they reacted sort of viscerally to the new left, especially to um, arguments, for example, made by black power activists that racism was institutional. They and so they were um, very much against things like affirmative action and black studies. They reacted viscerally to the perception of increased crime and crime related to race in the cities. And so many of these neoconservatives, these are people like Irving Kristol, Norman Paderitz, um, and to a lesser extent, Daniel Patrick Boynihan, Nathan Glazer. Many of them uh, were East Coast, oftentimes ethnic, oftentimes Jewish liberals, who were, who even though they were sort of outsiders, they had embraced 
an America that had seemingly been so good to them. And they were rather disgusted with those who, rather than sort of claw their way, bootstraps and all up the American ladder as they felt like they had done, were saying that the whole system was unfair. And so interestingly, even though neoconservatives were to some degree outsiders, you know, New York intellectuals, to another degree, they embraced normative America or the idea of America more than anyone else. And they they were upset that so many activists, young left-wing minority activists, were opposed to this, this idea of America. So politically, they remained liberals, uh, of the, like the 1950s sort of liberal. But culturally, where were they? Were, they, were the neoconservatives uh, culturally more... Um, <laughs> Progressive, or were they embracing also the 1950s normative America ideal? Well, I think that, um, and specifically, perhaps the two most important neoconservative intellectuals, Irving Kristol and Norman Pederitz, came at this. They're, they're a different generation, a little bit. Irving Kristol's a little bit older, and came at it from different avenues. Irving Kristol, by the 1950s and 60s, was a Cold War liberal. His earlier Trotskyist days, he had long ago shed. And so he is responding, as a Cold War liberal, to a certain degree, he does culturally sort of represent and come to embrace this cultural conservatism of normative America. Um, but then that becomes a much more political conservatism as well. And so by 1970, especially by 1972, he's embracing Nixon and, and he, he comes out as a supporter of Nixon. And from then on, it becomes increasingly difficult to uh, disentangle um, his conservatism from just basic right-wing America. Norman Pederitz uh, had always, he, he had had sort of a schizophrenic 60s. On the one hand, he was really good friends with some new leftists like Norman Mailer um, and when he was editor of commentary during the 1960s, he published a lot of new left tracks, including Paul Goodman's um, famous uh, book, which he serialized um, the book about the youth and the disorganization of youth. Um, and I can't believe the title's escaping me right now. Um, but, I have it on my shelf, but I, I can't remember it either. <laughs> this is embarrassing. But, but, no, it's okay. But he also, at various moments during the 1960s, sort of fretted about the cultural libert libertinism of the Beats. He also sort of made arguments about how race was a real issue and how, um, in a conservative sort of fashion, how white people, white Jews like him growing up near uh, blacks in New York City had reason to fear those blacks in New York City. So... There was this sort of latent cultural conservatism that comes to the forefront for Pederitz by 1970. Um, and so they, they emerge as a sort of cultural conservatism, but eventually they embrace the whole panoply of right-wing arguments. So I think you're talking about the book Growing Up Absurd? Yes, that's the one. Okay. Uh, the title I should never have forgotten. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um now, at this point, in this early stage of the culture wars, it's really an intellectual battle. Uh, religion is still not really the main thing. So how does religion get caught up in the culture wars? And, I, and we're talking about conservative religion here. 
How, how did previously conservative evangelicals in the 1950s who pretty much stayed out of, uh, you know, that sort of thing, because uh, for a lot of reasons, all of a sudden become very interested in, in politics and in the cultural politics? Yes. So they had a different path to the culture wars, and um, that's interesting in its own right, Then, but it's different from the neoconservative path, and they kind of come together by, say, 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. The religious conservatives, for the most part, mainstream religious conservatives felt like they were sort of part of the mainstream for much of middle 20th century America. But by the 1960s and thereafter, they're increasingly starting to think that, for example, the federal government represents what they would have called secular humanism. The secularization of the public sphere in the 20th century United States, which which I think is a real phenomenon, especially at the legal level, is catching up to them and they're recognizing it and they're realizing that perhaps their values are no longer sort of um, represented in the public America that they had known and love. Um, and so, for example, the 1962 Supreme Court case, Ingle versus Vitale, which uh, made prayer in school unconstitutional, to their eyes is sort of this like landmark case as part of their larger declension narrative for the United States. And then you just add to that things increasingly, for example, um, the increase the proclivity of sex education and other types of curriculum in schools that they don't recognize as they recognize as anti-Christian, or and then of course there's Roe v. Wade. Now evangelical Christians were not uh, anti-abortion activists up before Roe v. Wade. Um, that was mostly left to Catholics, but. A, after that 1973 Supreme Court decision and then a few years after especially, uh, evangelical leaders recognized that perhaps that is a major issue in sort of put it together with the increasing secularization of the public sphere. And so there's this whole host of issues that put together um, makes it seem as if the the United States represented at the government and public levels um, is secular and no longer Christian. And, and so they get much more involved politically at the cultural politics level. So what's interesting here also is that uh, the culture wars brought together Catholics and conservative evangelicals for the first time in the history of America. Yeah, that is interesting. And that's, um, in fact, one of the main original points that James Davison Hunter made in his very important book, The Culture Wars, which came out in 1991. Um, for him, the culture wars were about, you know, previous cultural conflicts were usually between, for example, Protestants and Catholics. Uh, but now you're having conservative Protestants and conservative Catholics and to some degree conservative Jews coming together and recognizing that their common enemy is secularism or liberalism. And so then you also see different and new alliances uh, on the left. And so this is the sort of polarization effect that we're seeing after the 1960s. Um, that, you know, and so Moral Majority, the, the organization founded by Jerry Falwell, was premised on the notion that he would welcome 
people from any religious background as long as they sort of agreed with the main issues, which were issues like prayer in school, anti-feminism, anti-gay rights, anti-abortion. That said, moral majority, the I think about 80% of their members were evangelicals, and they sort of filled a niche that needed filling for conservative evangelicals. But people are coming together around these issues. So this this part of the story, this uh, religion against secularism, is the story that actually most people think of when they think of the culture wars, that it's a religion versus secularism sort of debate or war. So I wanted to ask you, and you and you place conservative religious people against secular liberals. You sort of affirm that. But what happens to the liberal religious people in your story? There's a huge number of liberal Christians. What, yes. what happens to them? Um, yeah, they don't really have a very prominent role, if a role at all in my book, do they? I think that um, a number of things happen. There are fewer of them. Um, so... A lot of religious liberals are just, at least in terms of their political behavior, are just becoming secular Americans, which isn't to say that they don't continue to have faith, don't continue to go to church, but oftentimes the way in which they express their politics and express their cultural politics is just in straight secular terms. Um, and so maybe, for example, David Holliger's argument that um, mainline Protestants who argued for social causes of social justice in the middle of the 20th century, you know, maybe they won. Maybe their values became much more sort of mainstream, so mainstream that they just were sort of recognized more generically as secular or liberal values instead of particularly religious values. But also I think just what I'm doing is sort of following my sources. And so I guess that could in fact, be a critique of the book that I ignore the religious left. But I don't think the religious left plays a prominent role in national politics at this time insofar as the the main fault lines were between religious conservatives and those who made their political arguments in secular terms. But uh, even within this religious-secular divide, within the secular realm, the many groups that were involved in that uh, we're not always on the same page. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it's really um, it's uh, difficult to just say that this is a sort of two-choice polarization. There were divides all over the place. Um, so, like for example, neoconservatives and and religious conservatives they they came together on many of these issues. But, you know, on the one hand, the neoconservatives were mostly secular Jews um, and were probably not welcome in the heaven imagined by by religious conservatives. But for them, it became much more, for neoconservatives especially, but many religious conservatives as well, they saw an alliance there because how they imagined democracy um, was premised on the need for religion as a check on our more animalistic instincts. So Irving Kristol, a secular Jew, was by the 1970s making the case that Amer that the United States needed um, evangelical Christianity as the predominant cultural force. Otherwise, we were sort of left open to um, our own impulses. Well, a lot of intellectuals uh, who were secular and even agnostic or atheistic 
uh, made that argument that we needed religion, that religion had a vital role to play in society, and we needed something. And ours was, you know, Christianity. So let's go with it, or you know, conservative Judaism. So that yeah, that's right. It goes back to the to, to, to Tocqueville or even earlier, right? And so, um, so you know, it's just it's it's sort of cynical on the one hand, but it's also um, premised on what I think is a sort of rather honest assessment of how small d democratic many of these conservatives wanted the United States to be because um, they saw religion and conservative forms of culture as a check. So they didn't want sort of pure or open democracy, popular democracy. It was, it was much more a sort of old school Republican form of government because people had to be virtuous and religion is what ensured most people could be virtuous. Okay. Now some of the fault lines within the, um, the secular side of this uh, and also with conservatives, uh, religious conservatives, is the color line and the gender issue. So let's talk about that a little bit. Race in your in the chapter on race is so it's very well done. You re- did something uh, very accessible and, and clear. A very complicated arguments about critical race theory, affirmative action, colorblind conservatism. There was a lot of merit. It was there was a lot going on, and not and people falling in so many different categories of how they would describe their their idea of the race problem in America. Yes. So unpack that for the audience. Sure. So many people coming to the book might be surprised at by the chapter on race because it's not a lot of the topics covered in that chapter are not necessarily the topics that you that you would just sort of at a superficial level associate with the culture wars. Um, But because I argue that the culture wars were a debate about what it means to be an American, and perhaps the biggest shift in American political culture from the 1960s on was um, the civil rights movement victories, the voting, the civil rights act, the voting rights act. Um, And so at, at one level, it seems as if at least at the legal level, racial equality is here um, for America, and yet racial inequality persists. And so this opens up a whole host of questions that I think are very much related to the larger question of what it means to be an American. If African Americans have legal equality, then why are they unable to achieve racial equality? Which leads to a very diverse and a variety of responses, um, attempts at the intellectual and political level to figure this out. At one end, you'll have someone like Derek Bell, uh, the sort of original critical race theorist, who's making the case that the United States is irredeemable. It will always be racist. The very it's it's premised on racism. So a very cynical, at the left end of the spectrum view of racism. That is a sort of refutation of racial liberalism premised on the notion that through legal and political means, uh, we can achieve racial equality. We have progress along the race, the color line. At the other end of the spectrum, you have an equally cynical take by Charles Murray and Richard Hernstein in the bell curve 
Um, and this, in fact, was a, a, a transformation of Charles, Mur Charles Murray's earlier arguments, which he made in Losing Ground, which were a, a much more sort of traditional neoconservative argument about race that the welfare state was making people dependent on it, especially African Americans, um, and thus blamed the liberal great society New Deal for the persistence of racial inequality. By the bell curve, he's become much more cynical, and, he, and he's basically arguing, along with Richard Herrnstein, that some people just aren't intellectually capable of democracy, and, and thus inequality is the result of differences in innate abilities. So you have all that, and then in the middle you have all these other arguments. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of confusion about race. Why is there racial inequality? Well, how come African Americans aren't brought into the mainstream of American society even after legal equality? But this is uh, tied into the whole debate about poverty and the sources of poverty and where does poverty come from and how come we can't eradicate it? Uh, and I'm thinking about, I think you talk about it in your book, the Monaghan Report, and how that was turned. Monaghan meant something when he wrote it, but... It ended up meaning something else when it got into the larger public. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it really points to the kinds of uh, changes in ideas. Yeah, so Daniel Patrick Moynihan um, in 1965 when he was working uh, the Department of Labor in the Johnson administration wrote this report. And he, he was, you know, in many ways brilliant because he's at the forefront of trying to think how – racial equality can be achieved after sort of nominal legal equality. Um, and he was, he was pessimistic that it could be achieved for a variety of reasons. On the one hand, uh, there weren't enough good jobs for blacks in the places where they lived, so for example, say the south side of Chicago. But on the other hand, he also made this case, and this is what the report becomes famous for, that there was a cultural pathology um, in most black culture in the United States that he dated back to slavery and, and what he thought was the sort of matriarchy um, that had developed in slavery due to the sort of brutal conditions of the, the internal slave trade. And the reason why that became so controversial, I think, is obvious because many people – then and since have argued that blaming poverty on blacks themselves was a way of blaming the victim. And so he got caught up in these very intense debates, um, sort of the war for position over um, race and equality that persisted all that I think persists to this day. And interestingly enough, I think um, when many on the left whom he might have considered his allies reacted so viscerally against the Winahan report that pushed him more to the right and pushed him into the Nixon administration. He came back around to the left a little bit by the time he was a senator. Um, so he's not a full-blown neoconservative like Irving Kristol. But this is sort of at the precipice of that moment when you have legal equality but not racial equality and so it opens up a whole host of questions. Now, some black power advocates would have argued that, yes, Amer uh, black America is in the straits it's in is because of our history of America's history of slavery, which justified reparations. 
right? So, so, even, so Black Power Act advocates could also use that argument and say, yes, that's right, and now we need to make it right. Well, I think so, but they wouldn't have argued that their culture was necessarily um, distinctly pathological. Um, and, and so that, that's always been sort of the, the bracing terms of that debate that continue in the 1980s when you have William Julius Wilson, uh, a statedly liberal sociologist at the University of Chicago, writing a book, writing book after book about race relations and arguing that, um, Black Americans, on the one hand, are the sort of unique victims of deindustrialization because the jobs that provided for middle class incomes have left, and they left first in sort of black neighborhoods. Like, you know, again, he focuses on the South Side of Chicago. But then on the other hand, he goes out of his way to focus on what he considered this pathological culture um, of of poor black neighborhoods and makes it impossible for people to come away from reading his book focused on jobs as opposed to focus on this black culture. And so that's why he gets so many critics, people like Adolph Reed Jr. Um, and so the black power uh, activists would have, of course, focused on the institutional side of racism. In fact, Stokely Carmichael uh, and Charles Hamilton in their book, Black Power from 1967, coined this term, this phrase, this concept, institutional racism. But they would not have sort of taken kindly. They did not take kindly to the notion that their culture was uniquely pathological. Now, you talk about colorblind conservatism. And uh, what was new to me, that this was formerly a liberal position. Uh-huh. And, and that you, you set that against oh, uh, affirmative action. So can you unpack what those battles were about? Sure. So... Leading up to the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, most liberals in the United States made colorblind arguments, or they often made colorblind arguments. That is, that they believed African Americans were equal to white Americans in terms of their natural abilities. And so if the law would reflect equality, so for example, if Jim Crow was abolished, eventually they would become equal members of American society. Conservatives were the ones at the time who were not colorblind, who were color conscious um, for a variety of reasons. So for example, you had William Buckley Jr. arguing in the pages of the National Review that in the South, uh, the whites were the superior race for one reason or another. He wouldn't go into specifics as to why, but as such, they should be the ones with political power, not blacks. This gets turned upside down from the middle of the 1960s going forward for the very reason that because after um, the Voting Rights Act and liberals who want racial equality start to notice that racial equality is going to be more difficult to achieve um, than just having legal equality. And so that's when you get the case being made for affirmative action and you get movements in that direction by the Johnson administration going forward. And then you, that's especially becomes the, the sort of high point of argument made arguments made by campus activists um, they want black studies. They want affirmative action. They need sort of, quote, unquote, special treatment if they're ever going to achieve equality because they would argue whites have always had special treatment, so there has to be this sort of color-conscious special treatment if we're going to have equality. That was extremely 
offensive to what some people say, some neoconservatives who might have been racial liberals in the 1950s and 60s from the color blind perspective, all of a sudden things in their eyes are getting turned upside down, which is why the neoconservatives were so crucial to formulating this colorblind conservatism. And eventually by the 1980s, you have everyone on the right embracing this colorblind conservatism. And you have Ronald Reagan quoting Martin Luther King Jr. And everything seems upside down. Uh, this is a question. Maybe you address it in your book, but do you know when um, color or race was added to the U.S. Census? In the 1970s, I believe. Okay. Uh, sort of Pentagon that still has been so important in terms of formulating ethnicity, I, I believe, came into effect in the 1970s. Okay. So I think it sort of reflects I, this movement also, don't you think? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, many aspects of the federal government embraced color-conscious liberalism in the 60s and 70s. You see this, for example, in um, the Department of Education issuing mandates that schools, if they want, Funding a variety of from a variety of sources have to adopt multicultural reading lists that reflect the true multicultural nature of American society that they're basing upon census type information. Um, and of course, you, conservatives react in some cases violently against that. Now, Bell's critical race theory is that a reaction to both affirmative action and colorblind conservatism. Is Bell saying, did Bell say basically affirmative action is not going to solve it and colorblind conservatism is not going to solve it, that the race issue is just almost at the DNA of the nation? Yes, I think that's right. He wasn't against affirmative action, but he did think of it as a sort of tokenism, especially at elite institutions such as Harvard Law School where he was. Um, he thought it was a way for uh, liberals just – to make themselves feel better about the, about the situation. Um, and so he's a, he's a very harsh critic of liberalism in that sense. Critical race theory, first and foremost, was an attempt to not just study race, but to infuse conceptions of race into our sort of banal everyday, normal understandings of American life. And the basic argument is you can't understand anything about American life, especially at the institutional level, without first accounting for race. Okay, so the second fault line I'm interested in is this trouble with gender chapter, which, again, it's very easy just to put it in, you know, feminist, anti-feminist terms. But it's much more complicated than that even among feminists, because there's more than one feminism, and different feminists want different things, what they consider equality. Uh, so talk about that. Sure, and, and you can sort of think about this similarly to what happened with the debates about race. Um, mo most of the feminists, the liberal feminists of the earlier 1960s or from earlier periods, were what I sort of classify as gender-neutral feminists in the sense that they just wanted equality. And so Betty Friedan of the Feminine Mystique and National Organization of Women would have fit this category. They wanted to, 
they wanted to be treated as equals because they believed they were equals to men and that uh, conceptions of difference uh, were were not, in fact, true, at least not to the degree that they mattered in terms of participation in public life. So this, this liberal feminism is sort of a, a version of... Uh race color blindness it's gender blindness yes 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 not only before the law but in institutions of society so uh, they want they don't want gender to really be in play in decisions or in the way we construct the world yes and i think that's long been the sort of position of now at least insofar as it's the sort of liberal understanding that women are equal to men and should be treated equally before the law and within institutions. But the radical feminists of the 60s, um, it's not that they disagreed with this because they had an even more sort of radical understanding of how gender is constructed, but that they wanted, like the critical race theorists, to infuse gender into our sort of analyses of everyday life. So they weren't necessarily, they weren't going against the grain of equality they just had a more radical understanding of it. But then from there you get the development of what becomes known as difference feminism, which is an entirely different thing that becomes fairly popular in the 1970s and in many ways, many ways I think might be a sort of reaction to some of the political, seeming political failures of radical feminism from the 60s. Many feminists came to the conclusion that men and women were in fact different, perhaps innately so, but probably more so because of cultural conditioning, and that the ways in which women were culturally conditioned made them sort of superior to men in terms of thinking about a future society. Women were more, in the eyes of a difference feminist, nurturing, and we needed a more nurturing society. Thus, we should extend female values as they saw them to society at large. And in that way, they sort of went back to some of the 19th century feminists who actually believed that women should get the vote because women were going to civilize society. We're going to make it gentler and better and kinder. I think that's right, but with a more radical more radical twist that, that sort of made sense in, that, in the context of the 1970s. Now, the statement from the radical feminists that would really probably send a lot of uh, neoconservatives and religious conservatives into a, you know, complete <laughs> tirade would be the, uh, the comment, the personal is political. Because this, this basically is saying that gender and gender dynamics, gender power dynamics are, are, are everywhere, beginning in the most intimate relationships of sexuality between men and women, but from in the home to the government. And, until we recognize that this gender dynamic wasn't just about having equality before the law. It wasn't just about the, inst- the, the big institutions, but it was everywhere pervasive in everything. That's right. And it's, this wasn't necessarily new. Um, the concept the personal is political. For example, C. Wright Mills in the 50s wrote, wrote about it to some degree in his sociological imagination, and it's a sort of thinking about the ways in which power infuses all human relations down to the most intimate levels. But it took on a um, much more threatening tone when it became 
the sort of mantra of feminism, because in the eyes of many men, especially um, those with conservative views of gender, oftentimes informed by by a religious understanding of gender, it threatened the it threatened marriage. It threatened the sort of intimate relationships between men and women. It was the philosophy that gave us the quote unquote war between the sexes. And, you know, for a whole host of reasons that was problematic to a lot of people and not just religious conservatives. Right. And it's not just about, uh, culture, uh, there's something else going on, too. Women are entering to the workforce in great numbers are getting more educated. There's uh, economic shifts happening. So all of a sudden, uh, women are competing with men in the marketplace. And part of the, 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 le- the rights problem was women are leaving the home. They're taking men's jobs. Okay? Uh, and masculinity is also in danger here. That's right. Women, uh, for a host of reasons, are are gaining more independence. They're less dependent on men. And that was a threat to gender relations. That was a threat to an old, that was a threat to normative America, you might say, because so important to normative America, whether it was real or perceived, was the fact that Men and women lived in heterosexual marriages. Men worked outside the home. Women stayed in the home and cared for the children. And thus, in many ways, were dependent on the man. I mean, there, there's a codependency there, but there's no doubt about who is sort of a, a, on top in this dependent relationship. And women's independence uh, was a threat to that, that sort of normative conception of what it means to be a human being and an American. So you've got the pill... You've got abortion, which give women an incredible amount of new choices, uh, possibilities. Uh, you've got an expanded economic base, more jobs for women. So this is totally redoing the entire relationship between men and women. Yes, you also have really important feminist legal victories, such as no-fault divorce laws, um, that are just making it, putting women on equal footing with men, unlike any time in the history of the United States. Um, and to people who had conservative conceptions of gender, you can understand why that was so threatening. And perhaps one of the most threatening aspects of the, of the 60s and the culture wars. Now, I want to talk about the sacred and the profane, but I don't want to miss talking to you with the amount of time we have left, giving you the opportunity to talk about education, which, think, which you've already pointed out is one of your main interests, um, about the battles over school curriculum, multiculturalism, and standards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is and deeper than that, epistemological questions about what is the nature of truth and how do we read texts and what is the intent of the author? And you started getting into deconstruction. Um, there's a lot there, which even is, I think, for a lot of people was even worse because you're, you're dealing with young people in schools. So talk about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, I think that last thing you said is the key aspect here. The reason why throughout U.S. history, education has always been so political is because how people imagine the future of the nation gets played out in the minds of children. Um, And so especially in the 20th century, as schools became much more um, compulsory and universal, 
curriculum debates go to the forefront. Um, I write about this extensively in my first book during the Cold War, but then during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, you, you can't open a newspaper or a magazine without reading about some type of hot debate about curriculum, whether it's multicultural curriculum uh, being forced down the throats or secular humanist curriculum being forced down the throats of conservative communities, or whether it's at the university level at places like Stanford, where attempts to revise canons, revise received wisdom to include a more diverse array of, of authors and texts are met by some people as the death of the West. All of this is, um, to me, really exciting because we work in education, but also, I think, uh, a really um, good window onto the larger culture wars, the larger sort of battle over what it means to be an American. So take deconstruction, for example. Uh, it's not ex it's, it's sort of famous as being an extremely esoteric academic discourse. Uh and people who read Derrida or Paul DeMann don't necessarily come away with a sort of clear understanding of what it is. But essentially, it's at its root an attempt to um, undermine all received truths through readings of texts. Um, and for many, at a certain period in American history in the late 80s and early 90s, this was sort of undermining the very idea of America because we understood the notion of what it means to be an American through received wisdoms, through these texts, through a sort of canon. Um, ironically, oftentimes this canon was mostly composed of European men, but this was at a period when um, the United States, cons American conservatives, say William Bennett or George Will, felt like they couldn't trust Europeans with this Western civilization canon. It was left to the United States to do it. And if you had deconstructionists right in the middle of the American university, sort of enemy in the belly, enemies right here at home, the enemy within, then the very idea of America was threatened. And so, you know, to me, this is a really interesting moment in academic politics because you had conservatives liberals, leftists, a whole host of people from a variety of perspectives arguing over what it means to learn, what it means to be a human, what it means to be an American. And as such, the humanities took on this sort of massive importance, which at the time, if you're in the midst of those culture wars, might have not seemed like a lot of fun. But in retrospect, when it's either the humanities, those of us arguing for the humanities against those sort of austerity-minded conservatives like Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, who just want to cut all funding to the humanities. I guess I'm sort of nostalgic for the culture wars over the humanities. Did somebody actually cared enough to fight about it? Yes. Okay. Yes, I much prefer conservatives like William Bennett, who believed all Americans should learn the humanities. It's just that he believed that the humanities was limited to, say, Socrates through Adam Smith. Now, deconstruction and some of these other uh, movements really brought a deep suspicion, I think, generally to the public about everything they read and ultimately about history and the history they had been given about where America came from, what was the nature of America. All of a sudden, all these questions are open for discussion and questions that never, no one ever questioned before were not. Now we're questioning everything because we wonder who's writing the history, right? People are asking the question. 
uh, especially, you know, black uh, African-Americans, women, uh, all kinds of minority groups are saying, well, the history that the students are getting is history that has been written by white men to make them the heroes of the story. Yeah. So that's why um, following the 60s, but then particularly in the 80s and 90s, you have these intense history wars. And in fact, these persist to some degree. You can see it in the recent conservative uh, anger over the revised AP U.S. history framework. That's, to me, that was perhaps the most interesting chapter to write because as a you know, trained historian, I felt like I was um, writing a history of my discipline or the politics of my discipline. But you have a number of different things happening. Not only do you have the sort of rise of social history, which I think arises out of the social movements of the 1960s, um, which is not just about telling the history of black Americans or the history of women or the history of Native Americans, because that story's never been told. But it also is complicating and in many ways damning the traditional American narrative, because if you're telling the traditional, if you're telling a narrative about the United States through the eyes of African Americans who were enslaved and then had to live through Jim Crow and brutal caste system, et cetera, all of a sudden the history of the United States is very different and not nearly as rosy. Um, so, that, you know, you can understand why as that moves its way down into the high school curriculum, it becomes extremely controversial. As it moves its way into the museums, especially the Smithsonian Museum, which is known as the nation's attic and is funded by the taxpayers, it's extremely controversial. Um, yeah, public history becomes sort of a, a political football here. It does. Um, and that, and that's to me, that's great and really fascinating because it means that you have a moment when historical scholarship left the seminar room and attempted to sort of reformulate how we as Americans collectively think and remember our national history. Um, and it's going to be controversial. It's going to cause waves. And sometimes such waves were surprising to historians who sort of left to their own devices in the university, protected by academic freedom and tenure, could research, write, and teach history in ways that they saw fit. But when they're attempting to then tell that story, the sort of alternative American history in the Smithsonian or in other museums or more or in textbooks in curriculum that they want assigned at the um, at the secondary level, it becomes this national controversy. Um, it was a little surprising to some people, I think, that it became so controversial because it had become the received wisdom of academia. Or, or how about the, I think you talk about this, the, the conservative takeover, uh, evangelical conservative takeover of school boards. Yeah, so the conservatives, um, I think, recognized that for the most part they were losing these education wars. Um, the Supreme Court had not only made it unconstitutional to pray, to pray in school, but they, the Supreme Court had also made the teaching of creationism unconstitutional. This happened in the 1980s. They interpreted creationism as religious indoctrination. The list goes on and on. You know, you had the IRS who was cra that was cracking down on Christian schools, arguing that many of them were sort of bastions of segregation. Um, the list goes on and on. And so you had 
conservatives who decided that they were losing at the national level and so they had to work at the local level and take over school boards. And they had and continue to have more success there in some parts of the country, even though I think at the national level they continue to lose these larger curriculum battles. Now, you say in your conclusion, you have a very pessimistic viewpoint. You basically say the culture wars are over, uh, which I would concur with that. But you also say many of the issues that were taken up by uh, the left and even the right were co-opted by corporate capitalism. And... And, and the paradox, I had, I read one review of your book that basically said that you are saying that the left won, and I don't think that's what you're saying at all. Uh, the left and the right both lost a lot of things, or what they intended didn't turn out the way they thought it was going to work out. Sort of like radical feminists became libertarian feminists, <laughs> which uh, ends up becoming uh, part of the, the corporate capitalist uh, ascendancy in a new, very vigorous way. And you say that basically anti-authoritarianism, anti-authoritarian individualism, uh, has really is allowed capitalism to re- reign free, that in all this, capitalism won. As it always does, this is the United States after all. No. So, um, I, I, yeah, it is, a, it is a pessimistic conclusion. I would concur with that. What I'm trying to do here with the book itself, there have been many sort of Marxist and leftist critics of identity politics who have argued that it was always sort of already wrapped up in capitalism and thus a sort of uh, not a very radical form of politics. I think that is ahistorical because if you go back to the 1960s, identity politics was an extremely radical, could be an extremely radical position to take and changed our culture, I would argue, for the better. Are you, are they, is, is there an argument there that the new left itself was part of a capitalist uh, ethos? Is that what? Yeah, so Thomas Frank has written about this, for example, in his book, Conquest of the Cool. Um, which is, which is in fact a very good book. And it's not that he argues that the new left was like consciously trying to sort of, you know, make capitalist values more endemic in the United States, quite the opposite, but that they, they're the counterculture, countercultural elements of the new left. And then, um, got co-opted. Nancy Fraser has written about this in relation to feminism, the second wave feminism, whether or not it intended it has made sort of neoliberal capitalism more amenable because, you know, you can see this in the movie nine to five. I think I write about this in the conclusion, right? The, the victories of the women at the end were second wave feminist victories. Um, they were given a more flexible work schedule. They were given in office daycare, these types of things. And now many, many such things exist, but it's, it's, it's all part of this sort of flexible capitalism that many people call neoliberalism. It's made capitalism much more, um, in fact, exploitative because it assumes that everybody can work these sort of um, flexible schedules and it sort of has been part and parcel of getting rid of the living wage that was part of the sort of corporate capitalism of the 1950s and 60s. Now, the individualism of the counterculture is still here with us more yes. more than ever. 
and it's it's more than ever. It's not just individualism regarding, uh, you know, your personal choices of lifestyle, but it's individualism regarding your economic values. What is yeah. yours? Is that not correct? And that's why you're saying that we are, we have this place now where we're at this anti-authoritarian individualism. Yeah, I think so. Um, one important element of the 60s movements was a sort of lashing out against those things that constricted us, the man. Um, that part of the new left has has won, but it's it's for many people at the time, I think, how it's won might be considered ironic because it's also been lashed to this uh, individualistic conception of economic life. We're free to starve as well in ways that we weren't used to. <laughs> um, and so David Courtright has written this. He's a historian who's written this book, No Right, um, no right Turn. And in that book, it's a, it's a sort of political history of the culture wars, very different from mine, but comes to a somewhat similar conclusion, and that is that libertarianism is what won the culture wars, which means that the libertarianism of the left, the countercultural aspects, the sort of individual rights aspects has won, but also the libertarianism of the right, um, the market-based conservatism has won. So the... So basically, the uh, the possibility of social democracy is now only is is further away than yeah, we were that's, before. That's that's what I argue in the conclusion, and I wrote the conclusion while I was living in Denmark. I spent a year teaching there in a Fulbright, and you know, so I'm writing in the midst of perhaps one of the most robust social democracies in the world, and. Danes are very happy with their social democracy, I think, as they should be. Um, they pay very high taxes, and they don't complain about it because they have this sort of ethic of solidarity to their fellow Danes that we as Americans do not have. But it made me start to think about how such an ethic, such an ethos, w was made possible. Denmark is a small, relatively homogenous country. Does that does it being a small, relatively homogenous country make possible for the sort of ethics of solidarity that make possible social democracy? I think the hard answer is that yes, it does, and thus in a country, a huge, extremely diverse country like the United States, which in many ways was made much more politically and culturally diverse as a, as a result of the movements of the 1960s, such an ethic is much more difficult to achieve, thus making social democracy more difficult. Right, because basically people want, yes, I want my neighbor to have everything I have, but my neighbor needs to look like me and live like me. Yeah, to be really cynical, you know, to what degree were the sort of tax revolts of the 1970s wrapped up in the fact that, you know, they came after the civil rights movement and after the Democratic Party nominally committed itself to the civil rights movement. So now all of a sudden our taxes are going to... Um, to help African Americans achieve equality. To what degree is that? Are these things intertwined? I'm not so cynical to say that it's a direct cause and effect relationship, but something's going on there. And so, I would argue that historians of the um, late 20th century United States and the future are going to have to grapple with these two sort of large transformations in American life. The um, the transformation that I mostly deal with in the book, which is about how the United States become more feminist, more pluralist, less racist. Those of, those 
most of us, at least in academia on the left, think these are very good changes, but also the much more conservative economic and in some ways political system that we now have. To what degree are these things um, mutually constitutive? And that's a sort of difficult question that I think historians hopefully will be grappling with for decades to come. Okay, um, so what's the takeaway for the reader? What do you want the reader uh, who reads your book to take away or come away with? You have taken on so many complex ideas and made them really accessible. I'm, I'm very impressed with that. Not everybody can do that. So, Well, thank you. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I try to do with the book um, is make – a lot of is bring together a lot of seemingly disparate discourses as part of this national framework for trying to understand the nation. So what is what do academic debates about deconstruction have to do with you know like um, the gender politics of the Christian right? I'm trying to bring these things together in a framework that just help us make sense of the last 40 or 50 years. That's my main goal, um, is just helping people to make sense of the United States, this crazy animal we call America, especially uh, since the 1960s, because I think our history has become much more complex um, in the last 50 years or so. For historians who read the book, um, one of the main things I want them to take away from it is that Political conflict still matters. In fact, sort of the subtext, I'm arguing against Daniel Rogers' An Age of Fracture. Great book, transformative book. And in fact, I would be honored if people in the future would assign my book alongside his because it's such a great book. But one of the things that his book does is it de-emphasizes political conflict in bringing everyone together as part of this sort of layer of fracture. Everyone everyone's ideas about the world are similarly fractured. And I want to sort of put conflict back, put political conflict back into that, which is why I, I put such an emphasis on the new left in the 1960s. Okay, Andrew, you have been very generous with your time. And I do have one final question. What are you working on now? <laughs> well, right now I'm just having fun sort of talking about this book, but I do have plans for my next book and it's going to be a history of Marx in America um, from 1848 to the present. I feel like we're in a time right now where there's increased discussion of Marx. Um, you can see this in a number of different ways. There's especially increased discussion of um, economic inequality and capitalism in general and what capitalism means. Uh, so for, you know, a book like Thomas Piketty's Capital can sell tens, of, maybe a hundred thousand books in a short period of time. This is a sort of literary phenomenon that only makes sense because all of a sudden we're really interested in these topics again. And so what I would like to do is um, go back to 1848 up through the present and study these issues through the lens of the great critic and historian and analyst of capitalism, Karl Marx. It's a sort of continuation of my larger project, which is to understand American modernity and its discontents. And what better way to do it than to study it through the philosopher who is perhaps the philosopher 
of modernity, Karl Marx, but also perhaps the least likely philosopher to have any sort of to have any sort of home in the United States. Okay. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 